This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV. And now here's host Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week we will feature a special focus on Pope Benedict XVI and his trip to Latin America. But first we turn to Vanessa Jesus Gonzati, who's back this week. She has the latest details of the Pope's trip, along with our weekly review of news from around Latin America. Experts gather in Washington, D.C. to discuss elections in Latin America, especially the Mexican ones. They say the biggest issues will be security and microeconomic ones. But Chris Wilson of the International Center for Scholars says that those will not be the issues that will decide the upcoming presidential election in July. I think that really what it's going to come down to is how the candidates campaign and how, you know, what the debates look like, what, how their ability to connect to voters is. It's, it's really, I think, a matter of the individuals getting out there being able to sell themselves at this point. Wilson says that even though Enrique Pérez Nieto has been a solid favorite in Mexico, followed by Josefina Vázquez Mota, preferences might change over the next few months. Pope Benedict starts his visit to Mexico today, Friday. Catholics expect him to deliver a strong message against the violence caused by the drug war. The three-day visit will start in the central city of León. The Pope will meet Mexican bishops and Mexican President Felipe Calderón during his stay. He then heads to Cuba Monday to help promote changes in the island. The United Nations says the Mexican state has participated in kidnappings and disappearances of Mexican citizens. The UN based this statement on a trip to Mexico in 2011, during which the organization met with authorities, international NGOs, relatives of disappeared persons, and former victims. The organization says that it is difficult to determine the actual figure because many have vanished under government complicity and it keeps different counts of the total number of those missing. They say that while crime groups have committed a large number of kidnappings, the state has also been involved. An earthquake shook Mexico on Tuesday, damaging hundreds of homes and making thousands flee. Fortunately, no one was killed. The center of the 7.4 earthquake was located between the southern states of Oaxaca and Guerrero. Two people were injured in Mexico City and nine in Oaxaca State. Mexico City was greatly damaged by the 1985 earthquake that killed 10,000 people. Experts say this one was smaller and released less energy. President Hugo Chavez is officially back in Caracas after undergoing surgery in Cuba. He led an energetic homecoming celebration last weekend that turned into a campaign rally. Once again, he insulted his opponents and talked very briefly about his health. He says that the latest cancer surgery was successful and that he will start radiation therapy treatment. In the next few days, I will start radiotherapy in order to eliminate any threat that might remain in my body after the surgery. He told his supporters that his opponents are not to be trusted and that the survival of the Bolivarian Revolution is at stake. The Venezuelan president has been highly secretive about his health and the issue remains controversial during an election year. This is Vanessa Jesus Gonzari reporting for Latin Pulse. Thanks, Vanessa. And now our special focus on the trip of Pope Benedict XVI to Latin America. Joining us to discuss the pontiff's trip is Tom Quigley, formerly of the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, 
He'll be joining a pilgrimage group to see the Pope in a few days for the Cuba leg of the trip. Tom Quigley, welcome to Latin Pulse. Thanks very much, Rick. Let's start with Cuba. What can we expect to hear about the Pope's trip to the island? What's planned? Well, I think the message is going to be very similar to what John Paul's message was in 1998, except that the situation in Cuba, especially as regards to the church and general issues of human rights and so on, has changed a considerable amount. That is to say, it has improved. There are much better relations between the church and uh, the religious groups and the government in Cuba than there was back in 98 when John Paul came. So I think we can expect to hear the Pope use some of the same terms of uh, hope for continued dialogue, for uh, encounter, encuentro, dialogo, reconciliación, are the three themes of the Cuban bishops' site in their uh, run-up to the meeting. And uh, the idea of reconciliation is a key concept in, in the church's thinking. Uh, it's reconciliation within the Cuban family, and that includes the family that's abroad as well as those in, in Cuba itself. And as you well know, that's, a, that's a fraught with a considerable amount of antagonism, as we've seen even in recent days with some of the articles that have appeared in the, well, I've read in the in press in this country from, by Cuban Americans who are very hostile to parts of the Cuban visit, parts of the church in Cuba. So his goal is going to be to try to strengthen, to encourage the Cuban church, and to try to build on the progress that has been made in terms of reconciliation, improvement in the lives of people, improvement in the human rights situation. Do you disagree with those Cuban-American views? And if you do, how do you disagree with them? Well, Carlos Ayre, whom I, his memoir, Waiting for Snow in Havana, was delightful, and I, I loved his stuff. He's up at Yale. But he wrote a terrible piece in the Miami Herald recently and then another piece uh, that appeared elsewhere, a long letter that he wrote to the Pope, much more respectful than the first one. The first one was really so hostile to the Cardinal Archbishop of Havana, Jaime Ortega, that it really would have uh, qualified for libel. Uh, he took the Archbishop to task for saying that the Pope is likely to meet, he certainly will meet with Raul Castro, who will meet with him on the, when he arrives in uh, Santiago de Cuba, and he will meet with them again in Havana and uh, may meet with Fidel Castro. Well, that outraged many people. They would think of meeting with Fidel Castro. He, John Paul met with him, of course, as head of state back in 98. Carlos Aire and some others have said that, uh, well, he should be meeting with the ladies in white, the Damas de Blanco. These are the women who have demonstrated in front, they go out from Mass at Santa Rita Church on the Fifth Avenue on Sundays, and they just prayed silently, often carrying flowers, and they're all dressed in white. They are the women whose husbands and sons and fathers were arrested back in 03, the dark spring of 2003. Um, and they formed the basis of the group of 75. And 75 was a famous number in Cuba. The U.S. Uh, had, had the intersection. Cuba had the 75 emblazoned on the top of the uh, intersection in Havana. So that became the big issue. Well, all of those 75 are out of prison. And they're out of prison largely because Jaime Ortega, pressured Raul Castro to, to come clean and say that these people have, they represented no threat to the Cuban state. They were simply people who had dissident views, and they expressed them in writing and other ways, but not in anything violent, and that they should be let out of jail. And so they are all out of jail. Uh, most of them are now in Spain, and so Carlos Ayre and some others have said, well, I mean, Ortega forced them to go into exile. He didn't force them to go into exile. He got them out of prison. Then the state takes over, and they said, we're not going to have them here in Cuba right now. A few are still in Cuba. But others have gone to Spain, and 
it's pretty clear of my conversation with people in the State Department that they will allow these people to come to the States if they choose. That's what they want to do. But they're in Spain now with their families, and they're infinitely better off than they were when they were still in a prison. The ladies in white, all of their, all the women who were involved with the 75, few of them are in the group right now. There are other women and other groups that have identified with them because they are a respectable dissident group. But they have the permission to walk along the Quinta Avenida, Fifth Avenue, in front of St. Rita Church. Last week, a little over a week ago, uh, a group of them went outside of the perimeter that had been offered to them. And so the state security said, that's not in the rules. And so they, they picked them up and took them to uh, interrogation, but they didn't interrogate them. Then they took them home. But they were arrested in the sense that, uh, as far as Miami is concerned, they were all arrested. They were, none of them were beaten. And they're all free today. But should the Pope meet with them, there's no reason that uh, that can be offered why he should meet with this particular group of dissidents. There are many other dissidents in Cuba, and there are many people that the Pope has to meet with because protocol calls for him to meet with the interreligious groups, with the other with the ecumenical groups, the Protestant churches and the Jewish community and the Islamic community, and he has to meet with the civil authorities. That's just part of uh, the game that uh, these papal visits uh, entail. Should he meet with this particular group? There's nothing they have to tell him that he doesn't know already or that he can learn, cannot learn from the Cuban church authorities that he deals with. So it's just a, it's a ploy to get them up there or to get people like Carlos Aire and some others who run blogs on the Cuban-American front here just to give them ammunition against Jaime Ortega. Arguably, before Pope John Paul II's visit to Cuba, there might not have been any dissident groups like there are today in the post-2003 Cuban reality, in the post-Fidel Castro reality. So isn't a visit by a pope to a communist or post-communist state, doesn't that hold the same sort of potential for change going forward? Well, change has gone uh, on. I mean, there really are so many differences. There were dissidents at the time of John Paul's visit. Uh, there were key people within the Catholic Church in particular. There was a very good publication out of Pinar del Rio in the far western part of the country called, uh, uh, lost the name of the thing, uh, Vitral, that uh, <clears throat> published... And Vitral has been very important. It was a very important, but it was closed down initially when the new the Jaime, or rather, uh, Piero Ciro Gonzalez was the bishop of Pinar del Rio, and uh, he and uh, Dagoberto Valdes caused a great deal of uh, heartburn for the communist authorities. Uh, Ciro Gonzalez retired because he was over 75, and they, got, they, they closed down Vitral, but then opened it up again, but it's a much more um, generic or general kind of a publication, not as, as tough as the earlier Vitral was. But but in the Cuban sense, to have a publication that doesn't exactly answer to state censors, that is a, a, Absolutely an aperture. Right. And today, there is a thing that comes out of the Archdiocese of, Maya, of, of Havana called uh, uh, Espacio Laica, Lay Voices, Lay Space. And it is run by the same people who put out Vitral and others, and they publish things every week. It's a blog. It's on the, it's on the, the uh, Internet. So it doesn't get the high visibility, but there no publication gets high visibility in Cuba except the official government publications of Granma and Juventud Rebelde and, uh, and so on, the, public, the newspapers. There are a few publications in, in the, each of the dioceses, or most of them right now, do have a paper of some kind, a, <clears throat> a four-page or thing, or a smaller uh, booklet. 
that they publish each weekday, and it contains some Sunday the mass uh, prayers of the mass of that day, and uh, some information about what's happening. But they're very mild. But they, they were not possible even just ten years ago. So there's been a lot of, uh, I mean, progress. It's uh, it's very slow, and nowhere near where things ought to be. But uh, simply no de no denying that Raúl Castro in particular has brought about changes. And so there's a much more easy relationship between the dissident groups who can protest quite vocally, but they can't, they can't uh, take to the streets in large numbers. I mean, the, Cuba's, the Cuban government is certainly afraid of social media. So the, the media are very much controlled in, in Cuba. Very few people have access to the, to the Internet. Some do. And there are some blogs, quite good blogs. Uh, Yoani uh, Sanchez. Sanchez, exactly. And, but when you talk to Cuban people on the street, they know less about the dissidents than anybody in Miami does. I mean, the, the Cuban dissidents are well known outside the country, and the, the Damas de Blanco were given the Sakharov Prize in Europe and so on. <clears throat> but the, the, uh, avail the awareness of, the, of dissidents is very limited in Cuba itself. It's among certain classes of people who follow politics closely, but the vast majority of people are concerned about getting through the day. Is it too much to expect Pope Benedict to make this small opening bigger at the end of his trip? I think that could be a consequence of it, but I don't think he's going to come on in a confrontational way. I think that's not. Uh, I think the Pope, is, like Jaime Ortega, is grateful that he's had a good interlocutor with Raúl Castro, which was not the case with with uh, Fidel Castro before. You know, when the U.S. bishops first went to Cuba in 1985, was the first time that uh, the bishops from this country were able to go to Cuba. And bishops are going for this trip. Yeah, too. they are indeed. But at that time, travel was very restricted into Cuba. So when Fidel Castro said he wanted to meet with the U.S. bishops, they said, fine, but we insist that the Cuban bishops come with us. They had never had one meeting with Fidel Castro for all the years since 1959 to 1985. They had never met with Fidel Castro. So it was a new thing for them, and it was brokered by the U.S. bishops at that time. Since that time, things have changed very dramatically. Than, you just can't compare it with 1985 or even 1998. Today is a very different time. Well, since we've talked about Cuba quite a bit, as we conduct this interview, the Pope is in Mexico and and doing a very different sort of tour in Mexico. Uh, what's your take of his message there? Mm. I think the uh, I, I don't think he has a very specific uh, emphasis that I'm aware of, at least. <clears throat> Mexico, as you know, is so riven by these violent gangs and drug trafficking and the constant, uh, the appearance of, of bodies mutilated and, and slaughtered all over the country, but especially in certain states, he can't avoid, it seems to me, making some acknowledgement of that. How, how critical he's going to be with the government, I doubt he's going to be very, because Calderon, the president, is a, is a Catholic who has great respect for the Pope, and I think it's, it's mutual. So he's not going to criticize the government's failure to control the drug trafficking, but he will address, I think he'll have to address in some fashion, the, 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 the phenomenon of the drug trafficking, which is in turn based upon another phenomenon, which is the drug consumption, mostly north of the border. And so that's something that, that comes back to us rather than just to the Cuban people. Uh, he's in Leon in Guanajuato, which is a very nice area. He's there partly because the John Paul did not get to that state. It's a very large state. Um, but he's also not going to Mexico City because of the altitude. And John and Benedict, as the limitations of the heights, as do I, people of a certain age, have to uh, keep ourselves down closer to the sea level. Um, so his uh, his visit to Mexico is just going to be concentrated on that 
rather lower uh, state of, uh, Leo, of Guanajuato, and then he'll fly from there right off to, to Santiago de Cuba. Some of our listeners may not track this, but the current ruling party in Mexico, the PAN, mm-hmm. the PANistas, are very much a pro-Catholic party. They don't yeah. hide their Catholicism mm-hmm. like other parties may ask for mm-hmm. more of a secular, secular view of the government, and they're very pro-Catholic. And um, and this also is is part of the reason why he's coming to Mexico, too, because Mexico is such a large Catholic country in Latin America. Well, John Paul went to Mexico under the PRI, which was the party that may come back into power. They were the, par- the party in power for the longest time, the party of the institutionalized revolution. More than 70 years. Exactly. And um, they, uh, they stand a good chance of taking back the presidency, and we'll see. But uh, the hostility to the Pope, which was true of parts of the government at that time, of John Paul's time, is certainly not there today with, with Calderon. And um, the PAN is, is a, a party of Christian inspiration, but so are the Christian Democrats of Adenauer and, and so on of that time of the post-World War II. Uh, they don't, that doesn't make them a church party in any strict sense. They're not a denominational party. But uh, yes, the, uh, the party is, has a favorable attitude toward the Catholic Church. During the time of John Paul's this that the clergy still had not uh, the ability to uh, wear their clerical garb on the streets and so on. Was, the anti-clerical laws were still in effect. That's all changed in Mexico. There's been some creeping change in Mexico toward um, evangelical Protestantism, just like there has been in Central America. Some people have criticized this pope for not coming mm-hmm. to Mexico soon enough. What's your take on that? Well, I think his uh, schedule has been pretty busy all these years, so I don't know that he had an opportunity of coming to Mexico earlier. And he wouldn't come specifically for the question of the uh, what some people— in fact, I, I met just yesterday with the head of the Presbyterian Church in Cuba, and uh, the re- director of the—he's not the head of the Presbyterian Church, the director of the Matanzas uh, Ecumenical Seminary. And we talked a little bit about the, uh, the relationship between the churches and the government— and the mainline Protestant churches and the Catholic Church have a much better relationship than before. There are still certain fundamentalist groups that come in, and they, they are the ones that the State Department refers to when they talk about uh, lack of religious freedom in Cuba. It's really not, be, uh, not against the Presbyterians, Methodists, and the Catholics. It's against groups that are some, themselves obstructive of peace and order, and they, they've gone into churches and disrupted religious services and so on. So basically, the Pope is, is not going to address the question of these fundamentalist groups. I don't expect that. But he'll talk more, as in Cuba, about peace and reconciliation. Well, I think that those two words are important when we talk about a trip from the Pope to Latin America. Tom Quigley, that's all the time we have today. Tom Quigley, our guest today on Latin Pulse. Tom Quigley, formerly of the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Democracy is synonymous with independence. Independence is synonymous with emancipation. Emancipation is synonymous with sovereignty. Sovereignty is synonymous with superiority. Superiority is synonymous with arrogance. Arrogance is synonymous with domination. And domination is synonymous with dictatorship. Dictatorship always finds its way. Amnesty International. Learn, indignate, act. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. This week we feature the last in a series of interviews gathered remotely during our trip to Guatemala. This pre-recorded interview is with Dr. Benedicta Boul of the University of Oslo Center for Development and Environment. She's researching the changing dynamics of powerful families 
and other economic heavyweights who control the economies of Central America. We, we're studying this because we're interested in elites and how elites are configured and reconfigured in the context of globalization. It starts a little bit from the old uh, conceptions of who's running the Central American countries, the 14 families in uh, in El Salvador and, and these ideas that are basically no, nothing more than myths today. And our questions, we started out asking the question, what's happening to these old elite families in the context of uh, a global economy? We all know that with the CAFTA, with the liberalization policy, structural adjustment before that, the economies of Central America has changed a lot. They've changed from being these stereotypically uh, the dessert economies based on coffee and sugar and banana and cattle and a few other uh, export commodities to be more, much more diversified. And then we wanted to look at uh, how are the old elite groups reconfiguring themselves in order to meet the challenges with open economies, increased presence of transnational companies and that makes a more competitive pressure at home. Do they uh, manage to uh, also um, invest abroad and, and act uh, regionally and globally themselves? That's kind of one inspiration for our project. Let, let me let me just stop there for a second and, and ask uh, some clarifying questions here. Uh, you mentioned CAFTA. So for our listeners who don't track this, that would be the Central American Free Trade Agreement, um, which created more or less a common market in the region. Um, also, you spoke about these myths of the 14 families in El Salvador, and there are similar myths of um, small groups of families that actually run things. I, I don't know what the actual total is, and maybe you you know um, that those 14 families are now something like 114 families that, that run things in El Salvador. But um, I, I'm wondering when we talk about these small groups, are we not really talking about oligarchies of power, oligarchies of, of economic power, um, small groups that actually run the market and run businesses in these smaller countries? Yeah, the elite is still small, but um, I don't not I don't think it's correct to speak about a set fixed number of families. I think these things are much more dynamic than one used to think about. I think there's been a shift in the families that are important and in the way the the kind of companies that are important, the kind of investments that are important, and the way they're uh, actually um, doing their businesses. Can you give us some examples of? of this diversification? Uh, are we seeing uh, other products, other industries move into these countries that, as you said, were primarily known for their agricultural products? And what would those be? Yeah, well, there's not so many other products, I would say. There's so many products. Uh, that's African palm. Uh, it's also sugar-based uh, ethanol, uh, bioethanol, um, some other project. Products, but it's mainly a matter of having moved out of inter- industry and into commerce, real estate, tourism, um, and the construction of shopping malls. And the big, big uh, sort of reason for that is, of course, uh, the increase of remittances that you've seen from the 90s and onwards. And they dropped for a while due to the financial crisis, but it's on the, its way up, which means that there's... Uh, consumer power, but there's uh, there's little room for actually being into um, producing industrial goods uh, because of the presence of transnational companies. 
So when we look at a U.S. image of Central America or a European image of Central America, we tend to think of very poor countries, struggling countries. Is this giving these countries some new hope for how their economies can rebound after this world economic crisis? Or is there a different message there? I think it's a bit of a different message. There are several messages. It's, one is that there is, of course, wealth, and there's a lot of wealth in these countries, but uh, these groups that are controlling a lot of the wealth, they're not investing it in their home countries. They're investing it where they find, find it suitable. Some also move out of the country, the region, and especially into Colombia at the moment, because they find it more attractive to invest there. So we're still seeing investment flight out of the region. Yeah, there's some. It, I mean, it, we're not speaking huge sums here, but uh, but a certain kind of investment flight. Um, I also don't think it's a. It maybe it's my prejudice, uh, my ideas as a kind of coming from development theory. It's not a good way of developing a country to to construct a number of shopping malls. Uh, it's a way of increasing the dependence on the U.S. Basically, I've. I've sometimes spoken of El Salvador as a suburb economy because people go somewhere else to work and what they construct in El Salvador is hotels and, and shopping malls. So I don't think it's a, it's a very uh, viable development strategy in the long term and I don't think, I think many governments in the region also uh, agree with that and they attempt to uh, encourage new kind of uh, groups and new kind of projects in order to counteract some of those trends that we're pointing to in our study. Before we go, and we talked about the 14 families myth, that there's more than 14 families that control the economy in El Salvador. Um, is there an example of another myth that you've already found doesn't really have a foundation any longer? Um, yeah, I think, for example, the myth that Honduras is a banana republic uh, controlled by the transnational companies. Uh, I think that's not true. I think the, the Honduran businesses are more resilient and resistant. Uh, they're under a lot of pressure and they have very scarce access to capital and uh, and, a lot of, and technology and a lot of other things that they need to expand. But they've been extremely resilient against the pressure from transnational companies and very smart at some times. And I don't think they've ever been a complete banana republic. Not that it's a banana republic, but but recently we had the former finance minister from Honduras on the program, and he was telling us his fear that the country is turning over too much of its land to these transnational companies and allowing them to set rules and have more power. What's your view on that? Do you agree with that or disagree? Yeah, I agree with that, and I think that's a risk uh, across the region. I think. But I think the countries that are under more, more risk of that is Costa Rica and Panama. But because if you look at the if you look at the investments numbers, they're much. I mean, Panama and Costa Rica attract the, by far the highest, the, the most investment, and I think they've. That's also where you've seen that the local group local groups are we are weakest actually, um, and I think that's for many different purposes. But. Um, Yes, I think it's a risk, uh, but I think it also this discussion shows that the idea of local 
elites and business group is kind of it's a two-sided story you want some of the wealth to remain in the countries at the same time you don't want it to remain in the hands of a very few and so there's yeah there's many different sides to this I think that's all the time we have today on Latin Pulse we've been visiting with Benedicta Buhl a professor at the University of Oslo in Norway who's directing a research project in Central America for the university's Center for Development and Environment. Thank you for joining us. Latin Pulse is available on the web and via iTunes. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, .org, and then forward slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org forward slash Latin Pulse. If you'd like to comment on this week's program, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud or on Facebook, or you can write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. Thank you for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For associate producer Vanessa jesus Gonzati and announcer Victor Kilo, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escuchenos otra vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced in Washington, D.C. at American University's School of Communication with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV and additional music from Canary Productions and Bathtime Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2012, Las Rocas Productions. <laughs>